are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon and welcome, everybody. My name is David Guzik. If we've never been introduced before, I am a pastor, I am a Bible teacher, I have an online Bible commentary that some people find helpful. And it's my pleasure to join you on a Thursday afternoon whenever I'm able to. And what I do when I come together with you all on a Thursday afternoon is we take your questions live on YouTube Live, Facebook Live, uh, our good friends at TWR360 and their great ministry. We're also uh, available on and through their website. Through these um, platforms, we invite you to join us either live on a Thursday afternoon or later on, of course, you can do it by some sort of tape delay. So very pleased that you can be here with us this afternoon. I'm happy to say that I'm back. I do want to give a, a message of appreciation to both Bill Walden and John Bonner, who did the show live last Thursday from Peru. I wasn't able to do it. I was actually on an airplane flying back from the Middle East, where the previous Thursday I did the show from Bahrain. Uh, I had a wonderful trip to both Bahrain and Jordan and visited a lot of wonderful believers there. And one of the main interests I had in making that trip was to develop connections with pastors, uh, seminary leaders and teachers, uh, Christian workers on the ground, just believers who have an interest in what God is doing in the Middle East, and talking to them about our Arabic translation of my Bible commentary. My Bible commentary is not only available in English, but we're also translating it into many languages, and one of our chief translation projects over the past several years has been in Arabic, and it's great to get together with these precious, wonderful brothers and sisters, uh, pastors and congregants, and just people of all different, you know, backgrounds and, and uh, languages, but again, first in Bahrain and then in Jordan. So it's good to be back. Uh, again, thank you to Pastor Bill Walden and Pastor John Bonner for filling in for me last week. But I'm back home in Santa Barbara and doing the show here. Now, next week, if everything goes right, I'm going to be doing our program from Germany, where I'll be visiting some wonderful believers there and grateful to be there again. But today, we've got a program in front of us. And how we do this is we don't go immediately to the questions that you might write in on the live chat. Before we get to those particular questions, we spend a little time and start with a lead question. And our lead question today, look, I don't know if I've given it the best title to describe the question. I've titled it, Can We Hold Back the Holy Spirit? But really, uh, you'll see what I'm getting at when I read this question from Donald. And this is Donald's question. Let me read it to you now. He says, the prophet Jeremiah said that it was like fire shut up in his bones, that if Jeremiah tried to hold back, it would weary him. So, if a person who is so full of joy because of what God has done for them tries to hold it back, it would weary them. So, the way that the individual lets it go is by shouting and dancing. So, was Jeremiah and the person full of joy influenced by the Holy Spirit? All right, well, Donald, thank you for your question, and I'm happy to sort of attempt an answer here right now. First of all, I would say, 
that Jeremiah, in the passage that you're speaking at, that's in Jeremiah chapter 20, and we'll get to those verses in just a moment. But Jeremiah was certainly influenced by the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt about it. Now, whether or not a person in our common context today, someone who's filled with joy, someone who's filled with sorrow, someone who's filled with conviction, someone who's filled with guilt, are they full of the Holy Spirit? We don't always know, do we? Sometimes we suppose that we can tell, and sometimes it seems evident, but, you know, who knows for sure? But I can tell you this with certainty. Jeremiah was influenced by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Jeremiah was not someone filled with joy, at least as we normally think of it. Donald, in your question, you talked about somebody just kind of being bubbling over with joy. They just can't contain it. Joy that might lead them to shouting and dancing. Well, let me just tell you, Jeremiah did not have that kind of joy. Now, I believe he had a confidence in God I believed he had peace in what the Lord was doing. There was certainly a kind of joy in Jeremiah's life, but he wasn't a happy, happy kind of guy. Um, Jeremiah's ministry was indeed a great burden to him, and he had little visible fruit throughout his ministry. Now, this passage referred to in Jeremiah chapter 20 tells us what a burden Jeremiah the prophet felt his ministry was, at least at times it felt to him like this. And let me just tell you, there's no shouting and dancing in this Jeremiah chapter 20 passage. Let's look at the verses that Donald was referring to here. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7. Oh Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. You kind of get the idea there in verse 7. Um, Jeremiah feels like God has compelled him to do ministry that isn't easy, that isn't popular, that brings him a lot of grief. Now, verse 8, for when I spoke, I cried out shout and shouted uh, violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Okay, so that was Jeremiah with the word of the Lord. Uh, Now let's take a look at verse 9, the verse that Don was really referencing. He says here in Jeremiah 29, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. Well, what a dramatic statement there from Jeremiah, the prophet. Uh, You see, Jeremiah knew what it was like to have this urgency, this burden, this calling, this pressing upon him that he needed to proclaim the word of the Lord. Let let me remind you once again what it says there in verse 9. It was his word was in my heart like a burning fire. Now, I don't want to make a separation here and try to say, It was not the Holy Spirit in Jeremiah. I believe it was the Holy Spirit, but it was the Holy Spirit working in and through and in cooperation with the Word of God. Most directly, Jeremiah did not say that it was the Spirit at work in him, although I think it was. But what he says most pointedly was that it was his Word, God's Word, that was in his heart like a burning fire. And Jeremiah even though it wasn't easy, even though there were times when he would rather not preach, he was compelled to preach. 
By the way, if I can tell you, this is a passage of scripture that I love to speak to other pastors and preachers about. This idea that um, Jeremiah's ministry as a preacher brought him many burdens and he tried to stop preaching, but he couldn't because God's word was in his heart like a burning fire. And, and it, was, it was too wearying for him to not preach than it was to endure the burdens that comes from being a faithful messenger of God's word. Uh, anyway, that's Jeremiah's perspective here. And at the same time, we should acknowledge that Jeremiah was not a defeated man. In the same context, he found confidence and strength in the Lord. Look at him speaking here in verse 11 of Jeremiah chapter 20. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will be forgotten. Jeremiah was in full assurance of the ultimate victory of God. And so that was really his peace. Okay, so let's come back to uh, Donald's original question here. Donald, I, I just want you to understand that um, I, I suppose that the Holy Spirit could so move upon a person uh, that it caused them some physical stress and strain to resist that work. I, I believe that. I believe that when people are trembling under the work of the Holy Spirit, most of the time it's because the Holy Spirit is convicting them of sin and they're resisting. Just as a, a person may tremble in a very stressful situation, if we don't respond the way God wants us to when the Holy Spirit is working on us, it can cause great stress and anxiety. Um, so it wasn't that Jeremiah was so joyful that he had to let it out through shouting and dancing. Jeremiah was so aware of the difficulty and price he would have to pay as a faithful messenger of God's word that he was faced with a real dilemma and he decided that he would go ahead and preach and be God's messenger despite all the difficulty. So, um, Donald, I, I just want you to see that, um, yes, I, I would agree that um, when we resist the work of the Holy Spirit in some way, it is a physical, emotional, maybe even somebody would say spiritual weariness to us. Um, but I, I don't see in the scriptures the idea that the Holy Spirit forces someone to dance or forces someone to shout a hallelujah. So somebody may do that because of the joy, the happiness they feel under the work of God. Uh, but again, we remember that principle that comes to us from the New Testament. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophets. In other words, we understand very plainly that when a person uh, has the Holy Spirit move upon them, it does not work uh, like demonic possession. It works in another way. It works in a way where the Holy Spirit works with that person's will and with that person's choices. So, Donald, I hope that's helpful for you and gives you a little bit better clarity there on that passage there in Jeremiah. Uh, now, I, I want to get another couple quick questions that came in on Facebook, uh, and then we're going to go to the questions that come in on the live chat. I had a question from David on Facebook, 
And um, recently I was talking about the Sabbath. And so this is what David responds. He says, with your teaching of the Sabbath, how do you get around the third commandment? Well, David, uh, thank you for your question. I think that's a very honest, straightforward question. And let me just say, David, I don't think there's anything I have to get around uh, in the Ten Commandments regarding the Sabbath. Um, Now, let me first say that it's really the fourth commandment, and we find it here in Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in it, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, uh, let's understand some of what this passage tells us about the Sabbath. First of all, the principle of the Sabbath goes back to creation. But the law of the Sabbath was given to Israel, and it was not universally given to humanity by God. Again, the principle of the Sabbath, I think, can be distinguished between the law of the Sabbath. Now, I I want you to remember that the Ten Commandments were given as part of the law of Moses to Israel. And, and not to the world in general. The Mosaic law that we find starting at Exodus chapter 20 and continuing throughout several chapters there in the book of Exodus, and then later, of course, clarified and expanded upon in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, that Mosaic law was law that God gave to Israel in covenant. Now, there's certainly principle and application that goes beyond Israel, Thou shalt not murder, or you shall not murder, is not just a uh, something for Israel, but for the world in general. But again, that covenant was made with Israel and not the world in general. And, and remember this as well, that the Ten Commandments are part of the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses, and they're to be understood in light of how Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. The Sabbath law, even included in the Ten Commandments, are part of the law, the entire law, including animal sacrificed and priestly service. I think this is very important for us to remember. Um, It's not as if God gave the Ten Commandments universally, even though they have a broader application than such as animal sacrifice, No, this is all of one piece of the law that he gave to Israel in the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant or the law of Moses or the, uh, you know, the old covenant, whatever you want to call it. Therefore, especially in its ceremonies, especially in its rituals, these things are to be understood in light of their New Testament fulfillment. And there's no doubt about it. The New Testament teaches us that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Remember the meaning of the word Sabbath. That word in the ancient Hebrew has a meaning. That word Sabbath means rest. When God said, remember the Sabbath, 
he meant remember the rest. And truly, we remember the rest when we see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So there's nothing to like work around. We do this just as we see all of the Mosaic law in light of the New Testament, especially its fulfillment. I got one other quick question to ask before we get to think, but can you guys hear my chickens out there? Do you hear that? I don't know what's got my chickens so upset out there, but hopefully they'll get over it. All right, I want to deal with one other quick question that came in on Facebook from Teresa. Teresa asks this. I have another question hope to be showed through the scriptures. Um, if being, if not being financially wealthy is a curse by God. Okay, so Teresa asks this question. If I'm not financially wealthy, am I cursed by God? Well, let me just say very plainly, uh, no, uh, Teresa. Um, God repeatedly in the scripture explains how, in fact, he has a special regard for the poor. God has a special care for the poor. And we have to say that throughout the vast history of humanity, and, and even today, most people are not wealthy. If God had a special curse upon all those who were relatively poor, that would mean that the vast amount of humanity was cursed by God and specifically, you know, that punished for that. No, that, that's not the idea, Teresa, at all. In fact, we can say this. The Bible teaches us that riches are an obstacle to the kingdom of God. Instead of the rich being uniquely blessed, the rich have significant obstacles to coming to the kingdom of God. Not insurmountable obstacles. Jesus made that very plain in Matthew chapter 19 when he's talking about a camel through the eye of the needle and the disciples are amazed and say, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So no, we should not say, we should not think, Teresa, that if a person is not wealthy, they are cursed by God. In fact, it is possible for wealth in itself to be a curse and for someone to be so in love with their material wealth and possessions on earth that they miss out on contentment in this life and eternal life in the life to come. So again, I hope that's helpful for you there, Teresa. Uh, we should not think that at all. Instead, the scriptures clearly show us two things. First of all, God's regard for the poor if you remember at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he specifically said that he came to preach the good news to the poor. And then we also see that uh, riches as well present a specific obstacle to the kingdom of God. All right, Teresa, again, thank you for your question. I am going to go now and take a look at the questions that have come in on the live chat. Let me go over to my screen and see what's been forwarded to me. Okay. Um, Adonis asks this question. The critical text of Revelation 17, verse 16 says that the horns and beast will hate the harlot. Uh, Texas Receptus Bibles, that would be the King James and the New King James, uh, say that the horns upon the beast will hate the harlot, which is correct. Okay, Adonis, I can give you a quick answer to that question. And I'll just say, I don't know. And I wouldn't know, apart from doing 
uh, some deeper research. What Adonis is referring to here is a phenomenon in understanding the manuscripts of the Bible where we understand that there are two main families of manuscripts. Sometimes these names for these different families of manuscripts go under different names. Sometimes people talk about the majority text uh, or the Alexandrian text. That, that would be one family. Uh, the other family of Greek manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, is sometimes called uh, the Byzantine text or the received text. Um, these two families of manuscripts come from different geographies and slightly different traditions. Now, there are many more manuscripts in the Byzantine or received text tradition. There are uh, older manuscripts, older existing manuscripts in the uh, Alexandrian or majority text. Um, excuse me, I, I've, excuse me, majority text belongs to Texas. The Alexandrian um, family of manuscripts. Forgive me for mixing up my terms there. Okay, so... How do we know when there's a difference in the readings between the two families of manuscripts? How do we know which one is correct? Let me tell you what I do not think we should do. We should not say one family of manuscripts is always right and the other family of manuscripts is always wrong. Now, I have an appreciation for the Greek manuscripts that come from the Byzantine tradition uh, where there's many more manuscripts um, other people have, and I understand why, and I, I don't think it's it's wrong or ignorant to do this, uh, favor the other, where, have the older manuscripts in. Um, I think that these determinations have to be made on a case-by-case -case basis. And Adonis, what I would do if I was going to dig into that question is I would go to the Greek resources that we have. Um, I have them in print. You can also get them online, of course. And you simply uh, look which manuscripts have which readings, which dates, which families, which numbers of manuscripts. And I, I believe that these textual condition, uh, um, these textual questions as to which manuscript, it has to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. So obviously I can't answer off the top of my head because I'm not super conversant with this particular issue that you bring up, but I can just give you the principle by which I would decide and go through and take a look at these manuscripts have this reading, those manuscripts have the other reading, which manuscript tradition seems stronger, better, more likely, and determine it that way. So that's all I could answer on that. Um, Anahui asked the question, if, is biblical if one follows Christ, uh, Jesus, will they be financially wealthy? Again, um, I think I answered that question in our lead up there, Teresa. Again, no. Again, and we know this, from what the Bible says about God's love for the common people, for the poor people. And we also know it because of what the Bible tells us as how riches are a genuine and legitimate obstacle to the kingdom of God. We praise God that they're not an insurmountable obstacle, but they present a challenge to the kingdom of God. Okay, here's another question from Benjamin asking on YouTube. What criterion should we apply in discerning purported prophetic voices? 
The Old Testament suggests perfection is required, but the New Testament suggests possible leeway, provided they're consistent with Scripture. Well, Benjamin, um, let me express it to you this way. First of all, we judge any purported prophetic word by the Scriptures themselves. I mean, that's what we do. That's the first grid that we judge things by. And the Bible tells us to test the spirits, to test, to judge prophetic words. They shouldn't just be received. And this is a big problem in the charismatic, or some people would say Pentecostal world of today. That uh, bizarre and extravagant and sometimes just plain stupid words of prophecy are presented and they're not judged or evaluated at all. And again, this is a big problem in the charismatic, or if you want to say Pentecostal, again, let's just say charismatic world, those who believe in the continuation of the gifts of the Spirit. The first criteria, the ultimate criteria, by which any prophecy or teaching or assertion, anything should be judged, is by the Word of God. And if it contradicts what the Bible says, then you know it's not from God. So that's one grid to run it by. I also think that God gives discernment to leaders and individuals and churches. So a pastor, elders, you know, leadership team, however you want to describe it, they should have the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit to be able to discern. Uh, Because someone may make some kind of prophetic announcement that really isn't dealt with at all in the scriptures. It just doesn't even cover stuff that really is relevant to the scriptures. So uh, if that's the case, then I really would leave it up to the discernment of leaders within a church fellowship. That's a second um, aspect I would bring up in this regard. But then a third one is to see that if somebody makes some kind of assertion about something happening in the future, uh, then that thing has to happen. Now, I, I will say that it's easy for us to overthink what God predicts about the future and for us to assume a fulfillment rather than just um, take exactly what it says. And uh, I, I regret that I really can't think of a good example of this at the moment. But what I'm just trying to say is that um, we, we, we need to be guarded, we need to be measured, but we shouldn't be too quick to say, now, if somebody gives a specific date and says that something will happen on some specific date, then you're going to know, did it happen or not? But if somebody speaks about something in the future, well, then maybe it's for the distant future. Maybe it's for the near future. Um, where, Where it can be specifically judged, that's exactly what we should do. But we should understand that maybe it's not always clear. I think in one sense, the bigger question to deal with here, Benjamin, is what do we do with someone who gives some kind of prophetic word and it's judged to be false or not of the Holy Spirit or not of God at all? Well, um, I don't think that we should take them out back and stone them as the New Testament for Israel would describe. Um, And I don't think that we should necessarily excommunicate that person from the body of Christ. That person should be humble about it and repentant where appropriate or necessary. 
But I, I think that we should say, hey, listen, um, don't, don't do that. Don't speak on your own initiative and call it the Lord. Because really that's what's happening in almost every case where a purported prophetic word is given and it's not of God. It's somebody speaking on their own initiative, but then um, claiming that it's of God some way. So uh, that, that's the thing I, I would recommend in those situations. Okay, another question here from YouTube coming from Chris, who asks, why do some end-time prophecy teachers say that the Gog-Magog war in Ezekiel 38 occurs before Christ's thousand-year reign, when Revelation 20, verses 710 describes it, the same war as occurring after this period? Well, Chris, here's kind of the reason why, is that what we see in Ezekiel 38 and 39 um, really has no, in my mind, definite marker in the New Testament. Now, um, there is the reference that you mention in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 and 10, but there are some people who think, and I think it could be true, that this refers to like a second war, a further war. And a matter of fact, Gog and Magog there in Revelation 20 being used as sort of um, uh, a, a figure, a picture for um, uh, those set against God in general. It's drawing on that picture and expanding it in Revelation chapter 20 because we know it's not just one nation or two nations that comes against God at the end of the millennium in Revelation chapter 20, it's all the earth. So Gog and Magog isn't used strictly in the same sense that it's used there in Ezekiel chapter 38. So uh, I think that it's just a little hard to pin down. I, people ask me uh, the Ezekiel you know, 38 scenario, uh, when does that happen? I, I would say, I can't say for sure. I could make a case for it happening at this, some earlier point in God's unfolding plan, uh, some point uh, at the very end of the uh, millennium, uh, I, I just don't think there's a great deal of certainty there. But, but actually, what you have there, Chris, is people make that argument based in one thing upon uh, the idea that there can be more than one fulfillment and there's there's uh, and actually a second fulfillment of that. But again, I, I think it's fair to make the case that it could be completely fulfilled by what is seen there in Revelation chapter 20. Okay, here's a question that comes from Facebook from Rocco. Rocco says this. I got some pushback in my Bible study last Saturday reading Numbers 13 and 14 about the spies sent out. I use your commentary as a resource to help facilitate the group. I shared that it was not God who sent the spies, as recounted in Deuteronomy 1, but Numbers 13 says that it was the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan. How can I reconcile this? Well, Rocco, let me say, it's not easy. Be because what we have is we have parallel accounts here, and we need to reconcile them properly. So, the Deuteronomy account would imply to us that the desire to send out the spies came from the people. The numbers account would imply to us that the desire, the instruction to send out the spies came from the Lord speaking to Moses. Let me tell you how I reconcile this in my mind. I think that the initial impulse 
came from the people, the initial impulse. They said, let's do it. Let's invest. Let's see if this land is as God has promised it would be to us, which I would regard as being something of a declaration of unbelief, lacking in faith. Is God really true to his word? Okay, so there's that. But here's the other aspect. I believe as well that once the people said that, then God gave direction to Moses on how it should be done. In other words, it's analogous to how the people of Israel asked for a king. If you remember in the book of 1 Samuel, the impulse to have a king came from the people. The people didn't want God as their ruler, God as their king. They wanted to have a king like the other nations. Now, after the people made that determination, God then said, okay, this is how I'm going to bring a king to you. So I believe that the initial impulse to send out the spies came from the people, but then God said, okay, this is how we're going to do it. And God gave those instructions to Moses, specifically in the instructions select one man from every tribe, send them forth on a mission to do it this way. Rocco, that's how I connect the two ideas. The original impulse came from the people, and then after that, God directed and said how it should be done. So it's really kind of a both-and equation instead of an either-or equation. Again, I hope that's helpful for you there, Rocco. Uh, From YouTube, a question from Janos. Hey, Janos. Good to see you, brother. Say hi to Anya. Okay. Janos asks, what do you think about people that feel like it's important to cover their head during church service? Is it up to the individual? Okay, Janos, first of all, there is no New Testament idea of men covering their head during a church service. There is the New Testament idea as indicated for us in 1 Corinthians. And again, I know that Janosch is familiar with these passages. I'm more explaining them for everybody else. 1 Corinthians speaks about women wearing head coverings, veils, it calls them. It's really speaking of a, of a type of head covering. So, Many people ask, or some people ask, well, this instruction is given that women should be veiled or have a head covering in uh, 1 Corinthians. Why don't we do that today? And I'll explain to you exactly my thinking here. The principle of the head covering in 1 Corinthians is important and continues to this day. And the principle is that it should be recognized that women are under God's authority and under the authority of God's appointed leaders in a local congregation, which would be men, I believe, by biblical instruction. The head covering was a symbol of being under authority. That's what a head covering meant in the Corinthian and in much of the uh, Mediterranean world context. It was a way of saying, I am under authority. Now, The principle of recognizing authority 
And, and if I could say, the women of a congregation recognizing the authority that God has given to the called and appointed and qualified men in a congregation, that principle still stands. But a head covering or a veil does not mean that or connotate that in our culture today. So the principle goes across time for the church always. The expression of the principle can differ from place to place or culture to culture. Um, in our culture, uh, a married person wears a wedding ring on their left hand. Janos, you know, in other cultures, people wear a wedding ring on the ring finger of their right hand. Well, which one is a way to say that a person is married? It depends on the culture. The principle of having some identifying mark that lets everybody know I'm married, that, that's a good principle. But the way it's expressed can differ from culture to culture. That's how I regard the head covering. Now, let me get to your specific question, Janos, in just a moment. But I want to say this. There are people, no, no, you, David, you're, you're just making it uh, culturally subjective. No, I'm making the expression culturally subjective, which let me say, which we all do. I'm going to suppose that in very few of my viewers' churches, I'm not saying it's impossible, but very few, do you actually greet one another with a holy kiss as is described in Paul's letters? I, I forget which church Paul told that to. I should have that in the top of my head, but I'm afraid I don't. I think there's probably very few, maybe some. I've been in some churches uh, in uh, Bulgaria, Romania, where, man, they, they took that seriously and they give you a holy kiss. But this is what I'm trying to say is we understand the principle of what Paul says there. Greet one another with a warm greeting. And we understand that a warm greeting was expressed by a holy kiss in those cultures. We recognize it's not the kissing that's important, it's the principle. In the same way, I'm arguing, it's not the actual head covering that's important, it's the principle. Now, is it permissible for somebody? I would say this. If a person wants to wear, if a woman wants to wear a head covering in a congregation today, she has full freedom to do it. Go ahead. There's no command against it. But here's the thing. Don't think that you're observing the biblical principle of recognizing God's leadership for a local congregation just by wearing a head covering. Let me just give you an example, hypothetical, of course. Imagine a woman who's very fastidious about wearing a head covering. Oh, yes, need to wear a head covering. But at that church, she's doing everything she can to take control and to undermine the leadership and to put herself forward and all that. But she, oh, I'm wearing a head covering the whole time. You see, she's keeping the outward cultural expression in New Testament times of that command but she's not keeping the principle at all. So as long as the principle is observed, biblically speaking, I think that women are free to wear or to not wear a head covering as might please them. I don't think there's a command to do it in that sense. The principle is commanded, but not the outward expression. Uh, 
but neither is there a prohibition of it. So I think it's just a matter of individual conscience and what somebody would choose to do. All right, Giannis, hope that's helpful for you. Tim asks this question. Did Jacob physically wrestle with an angel all night? Would that mean that Jacob had abnormal strength and stamina to wrestle with something that wasn't a human, or is this an example of an allegory? Hey, Tim, great question. Let let me just simply say that, um, no, well, let me phrase this. I do believe that Jacob physically wrestled with a being. However, I don't think that it was fundamentally an angelic being. I believe it was a, I think it was a, what we call a Christophany, or somebody might say in a more general sense, a theophany. This was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ before his incarnation. We know that Jesus, as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, existed before his conception in Nazareth and his birth in Bethlehem. We understand that. And in his pre-incarnate existence, it seems pretty clear from the pages of the Old Testament that there were times when the angel of the Lord or some divine physical appearance occurred, and this would be nothing else other than Jesus Christ appearing in human form before his incarnation. I believe that that's whom Jacob wrestled with. And um, I don't know that God gave Jacob supernatural strength. I think in a way, Jacob had supernatural strength. It was the supernatural strength of stubbornness. And let me tell you, that is a supernatural strength, isn't it? Some people have that divine gift of stubbornness like crazy. Okay, but just to understand this, that Jesus wrestled with Jacob. By the way, I think the phrasing of this is very important, Tim. It doesn't say that Jacob wrestled with the angel, an angel there would be Jesus himself, but rather it says that the man, as it called it, wrestled with Jacob. This was initiated by God himself, and it was initiated by God himself to uh, break Jacob of his self-will, to bring him to an end of himself. So no, I I think very much that uh, he had, if you want to call it the supernatural strength of self-will and stubbornness, and that's what God broke down in Jacob over this long extended wrestling match, so to speak. So, uh, good question there, Tim. I think this is actually an appearance of Jesus. And Jesus just measured his strength against Jacob to fully and completely exhaust him. All right, next question comes from N over YouTube. It says, what does it mean to grow in grace? Uh, 2 Peter 3.18 says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, N, I think that's a wonderful question. And uh, I think that the grace of God is something really important to grow in, number one. So we can talk about that in a specific sense, that the grace of God is a principle, is a truth that we should know and be growing in. I actually wrote a book. Um, Most of my books are Bible commentaries, 
But one of the books that I did write that isn't a Bible commentary is a book about grace. And this book, Standing in Grace, look, I, I think it's a good book. I wrote it, self-published. No real publisher has ever picked it up. But um, I, I think it's a good book. And uh, you can get it uh, online. I think you can get it in Kindle format uh, from uh, the Amazon Kindle store. So uh, I, I think that that's... An, it's important for us as believers to have a growing understanding and appreciation of the grace of God. Okay, now there's that aspect. But I think that also grace is used in a general sense. And grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is actually just a way of phrasing is grow spiritually. Grow in your life, your relationship with the Lord. And really, that's, that's what I think uh, is the bigger, broader message that Peter's giving to us there, even though I would say there is a real and genuine way that we should grow in our understanding and experience of the grace of God. Thank you for that question there, N. Uh, go on to another question from YouTube from Nack, who asks... Uh, where in scripture do people find scripture that supports their idea of praying, I decree and declare? What scriptures can I use to refute this type of prayer? Um, Knack, I think it probably comes from those, you know, look, let's face it. There are passages of scripture that speak very strongly of our authority in Christ in prayer. But really, that's the kicker. We don't have this authority resident within us. We, we can't go around saying, uh, I want this, I want that, I decree this, I decree that, in and of ourselves. Our authority in Jesus only goes as far as the authority and the will of Jesus himself. So I could decree something all day long, but if it's not in the will of Jesus, it's not going to happen. So, our authority as believers, which the Bible speaks to us about. You know, uh, passages such as 1 John, where it says, and we know this, whatsoever we pray according to his will, we know we have it from God. Uh, Jesus said, in that day you will ask what you will, and I'll grant it unto you. These and similar passages really give us uh, uh, wonderful and impressive and important promises in prayer. And we should be filled with faith when we pray. Recognizing, though, that our faith is not in our authority, in our will, in our analysis, but in God's perfect wisdom and strength. Maybe they get it as well from passages where people, uh, where Jesus uh, speaks of binding and loosing and that, but I believe that was an authority he was giving to the apostles and specifically the apostles of the first century to sort of uh, be the uh, rabbis for a new work of God's kingdom. So I think it's those passages, uh, Knack, that would lead people to believe, lead people to understand, uh, or, or to at least think, let me put it that way, uh, that would lead people to think that we can decree this or that. But we just have to come back to the principle that all the believer's authority is authority that's given to them in Christ. And it can only be properly or well exercised in Christ itself. Okay, uh, let me go on to a question from David. What does it mean to be poor in spirit 
in Matthew chapter 5? Well, David, that is a great question, again, coming from YouTube. Uh, You know what, David, this is what I'm going to do, is I'm going to call up my commentary here, uh, my commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, where it speaks about the poverty of spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, and this wonderful promise that Jesus made to those who are poor in spirit. And uh, let me see if we can just kind of take a look at my commentary together here and see what comes up with. Hold on, I got to do a little bit of switching around here. That, and then let me do one more here. Excuse me, there. Okay, let's take a look at what we see here in the commentary. Um, Jesus promising blessing, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is what I write about this in my commentary. This is not a man's confession that he is by nature insignificant or personally without value, for that would be untrue. Instead, it's a confession that he's sinful and rebellious and utterly without moral virtues, adequate to commend him to God. In other words, if I could put it to you this way, when we talk about ourselves being poor in spirit, there's a sense in which what we mean is we are bankrupt debtors before God, and, and we need his help. We need him to come and make us alive. Uh, continuing on there in my commentary, it says, um, the poor in spirit recognize that they have no spiritual assets. They know that they're spiritually bankrupt. We might say that the ancient Greek has a word for the working poor and another word for the truly poor. Jesus used the word for the truly poor here. It indicates someone who must beg for whatever they have or get. So again, um, I want to just go back to that thought that here we're talking about um, uh, people who are genuinely poor and recognize their poverty of spirit before God. Um, we recognize that we are people of deep and profound need before God, and we come to him as beggars, as people who need. Now, th- that is the starting point, and you could say that it's something of a theme throughout a person's walk with God, but God wants to make us um, blessed and, and so to speak, rich and thriving in spirit before him. Not, not that we ever lose that essential need of dependence upon God, uh, but that we see that Jesus Christ brings us what we could never have in and of ourselves. So again, I hope that helps you there, David. And uh, uh, dad of seven asked this question, what's your view of amillennialism? Well, Dad, I think it's um, I think it's incorrect understanding of the scriptures. I think it takes so many clear, direct Old Testament passages and has to allegorize them. Amillennialism, which is a way of saying uh, no millennial kingdom, is something that believes, in some respect, that. All the promises of God about a millennial kingdom are really just symbolic, and we are in the millennium right now. And again, I I just don't think that that's the case. 
Um, the Bible specifically tells us in the book of Revelation that this thousand-year period of Jesus' reign, which I don't think the reign of Jesus is limited to a thousand years, it's just there's a specific thousand-year period where he's doing something very important and special. But that particular thousand years of Jesus' reign, the book of Revelation makes it very clear that the devil is bound and prevented from any activity. Well, that's not the world we see today, either described in the scriptures or what we see with our own two eyes. So just for that reason, I would say we are not in a symbolic millennium right now. Now, of course, the kingdom of God is among us. Of course, there is a real presence of God's kingdom on earth right now, but not in the fully realized sense that the scriptures speak so clearly about. So those are some fundamental reasons why I would disagree with amillennialism. I think that they have a just a incorrect view of the nature of God's kingdom and the presence of God's kingdom among us right here, right now. Then I'm going to go to the final question. Now, when I say final question, friends, please don't despair. Um, if you uh, have been hoping to get on, uh, hoping I would answer your question, we go back and we take all these questions and we address them. We take a look at them and some of them we come back to later. So uh, again, it, the earlier you get your question in, the better. Uh, so maybe you can come back next week and we'll do it then. But let me go to the last question here for today. What is the difference from Horatio? What is the difference between a Levite and a priest? Great question, Horatio. Let me answer it this way. The Levites were a tribe in Israel. One of 12 tribes. You remember the 12 sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, the tribes of Israel? The tribe of Levi, from which we get the Levites, was one of the 12 tribes in Israel. The priests came from one family within the tribe of Levi. That one family was the family of Aaron, the brother of Moses. He was the first high priest of Israel, and all priests descend from Aaron and his direct family. So that's the difference. The priests were a much smaller group, all descended from one man, Aaron, the high priest, the brother of Moses. Uh, but the Levites were an entire tribe of people. Essentially, the Levites were there to serve the priests. Now, that's not all they did. The Levites had other functions as well. But one important function of the Levites was to serve the priests and to help them in the administration of their duties. So you're talking about the difference between a tribe and one family within that tribe. Hope that helps you there, Horatio. Well, folks, that's going to do it for today. So pleased that you could join us. Again, next willing, God willing, and if we live, I'll be doing this from Germany. I'll let you know. Uh, we'll find out if it actually comes to pass. And uh, again, very pleased that you could join me. Please, I don't mind asking you to keep the work of Enduring Word, that's the name of my ministry, in prayer, especially the work we have of distributing my Bible commentary absolutely free of charge to many different people and places 
and in many different languages. So I appreciate your prayers for that. I feel God's blessing is upon this work. And one of the reasons why I feel God's blessing is upon this work is because so many people are praying. So thank you for your prayers. God bless you. Hope to join you again next week. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful and an amazing day in our Lord Jesus Christ. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.